Well, good morning, New Life. Isn't it great to have a full band? Uh, there's, I counted, there's 10 up here, so this, this is fantastic to have such great music. Um, okay. And <laughs> we're excited for those of you who will be able to join us next week. Uh, just as a reminder, if you haven't gotten the, uh, the communication about that, next Sunday, so not tonight, but next Sunday evening, Seven o'clock, we'll have an outdoor service, so right out here in the lawn, so please don't show up tonight. Uh, you'll be by yourself. Uh, next week, we will still have this 10 a.m. online service, so we'll still have this. If you're not ready, if you're not comfortable, that's completely fine for those of you who are. Uh, a few things to, to be aware of. It's going to be a BYOC, okay, bring your own chair or blanket uh, to sit on, uh, D-H-Y-N, let me get that right, don't hug your neighbor, Okay, so we're going to be social distancing. Please be respectful for those who are, are not ready to engage in that kind of a way. Um, and, and then there's lots of other details online. Kids, parking, what happens if it rains, that kind of stuff. And we'll have that posted online this week. And it'll go out in our newsletter, The Loop, and on social media. So you'll be able to get all of those details. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing in our series in First Peter called Hope in Exile. And this is an especially difficult passage today. And, and the interesting thing to notice is with a really difficult passage today is that our lead pastor is not here. Chris is actually, uh, we're giving him a hard time, but he's, he's getting a week to worship with his family in his home, so we're thankful for that. He's probably finishing up some fancy breakfast like crepes uh, in his coffee this morning, uh, but we're, we're glad he gets to be with his family, and he'll be back next week leading us into the next part in our series, Hope in Exile. Well, in case we didn't get a chance to meet before the lockdown started, or if you're new since then, uh, my name is Rodney. I've been on staff for a little over a year here at New Life and uh, have, have had a wonderful uh, year here in Asheville uh, with our family. And by way of introduction to our topic today, I want to ask you to think about different jobs that you've had, specifically the very first job that you had. What was your first job? Maybe many of you are in your first job right now. Maybe you've had a lot of different jobs. And I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit, a little bit risky here. So uh, keep this clean in the comments, okay? Uh, but I'm going to ask you, if you're on Facebook or YouTube or, or uh, on our website, if, if you're logged into the comments, go ahead and put in there, what was your first job? So whether, maybe it was your role. Maybe it was uh, the, the company you worked for. Uh, so don't share anything negative. We don't need any adjectives uh, this morning. Just, just nouns. Just share what the job was. And I'd love to see uh, some of those as we go on. I'll, I'll share a little bit about my first job. Uh, my favorite job when I was uh, a teenager was umpiring Little League Baseball. That was a great opportunity to uh, build a lot of character. Uh, but my first job was at a grocery store, and it had a really creative name. It was just called Food World. And this is the only picture I could find online of the store that I worked in in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, it, it was mostly bagging groceries. I'd have other rotations like getting carts out of the parking lot in the thousand degree weather and 100% humidity uh, and, and different kinds of rotations. But the best rotation on hot days is when I got to work in the freezer. So stocking the milk and the dairy and that kind of thing, uh, that, that was kind of the sought after role. And, uh, and, and I wanna tell you about one particular day, but first I wanna hear from some of you guys. So what were some of your uh, first jobs? So we've got, um, Serena was a cashier at a diner. Excellent, okay. Anybody else with their 
first job, I know my wife um, had about 15,000 different jobs uh, that, that she's got a really interesting history there. We've got others who were cashiers at a Kmart. Do you guys remember what Kmart is? Uh, there, if you're on Patton Avenue, you might see an old one. Uh, it's kind of like what Walmart was before there was Walmart, okay? Um, so go ahead and put some of your jobs in the comments uh, in, on the website or on Facebook. That'd be fun for us to see. Let me tell you more about my job at Food World. So, so one day when I was in the freezer looking out uh, past the milk, I noticed something that made me see this is gonna be a really, really good day. It's, gonna, it's, it's a rare treat at Food World it was. It, it was a magical day that, that didn't come around very often. And I'm talking about convection oven pizza samples day. That was a really special day at Food World. This was before the days of Sam's or Costco uh, where, where you could eat a full meal of samples, okay? It, and it didn't happen that often. And what made it extra special was that the, the ladies who were giving these samples, they really had a, a soft spot in their hearts for us minimum wage workers. And so they would save us the bigger samples, sometimes a whole piece of pizza. Well, speaking of bosses at jobs, there, there were two managers on duty that day. One was Ms. Starling, Ms. Starling was in the fishbowl behind the plexiglass, and they, that's where they kept all the cash, because you couldn't use a credit card. You, couldn't, you, you had to use cash or check, and so a lot of people, believe it or not, paid for their groceries, the full cart of groceries, with cash. And so she's back there counting. The other manager, his name I forget, uh, it doesn't really matter. We'll just call him the worst boss ever in food world history, okay? WBE for short. We'll call him the WBE. He was always angry, he was mad at the world, uh, he was annoyed, especially with us low on the totem pole employees, and he just had a bad attitude, he was unpleasant to be around. Uh, but there was hope that day, maybe he'd be in a better mood, because it was pizza samples day, and the WBE, he liked pizza also. So there was a little bit of hope that day. Well, Miss Starling was doing her cash counting thing and she couldn't leave her post and so she called me over from bagging groceries which was really strange because she never really paid any attention to me and and she leaned over and she said the ladies left some pizza in the break room but you go get me some and so I was actually excited I, I had a special mission for Ms. Starling so I was able to to step away and and go on the secret mission and I went back to the break room and the break room at this point was empty. Nobody was around. There was a rusty old folding table where people would eat their lunch or, or whatever they had that day. That was empty except for one thing. There was not just a slice or two, not just a few samples. There was a full, complete, hot, fresh, still steaming pizza on the break room table. Now, two things to note. One, I hadn't been on lunch break yet, so I was hungry. Number two, Ms. Starling didn't know how much pizza there was, she just knew there was pizza. So I thought, carpe diem, right? This is my chance to get a full, a full piece. And it wasn't 828 Pizzeria or whatever your favorite Asheville pizza is, but it was decent for Food World and I was really hungry. So I open my mouth, I, I, I pick up a piece, open my mouth to take a bite and right as it's kind of like breaking the plane into my mouth and I can smell that hot fresh pizza, I hear something behind me and I heard, shouting. I said, I heard, hey, hey, no, 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 no. What are you doing? That's my pizza. And I stopped and I turned around and I see this dark red face. It was like a roasted beet on a human body. Okay. And you know exactly who it was. 
It was the WBE. He looked like he was ready to take me out and bury me if I took a bite of that pizza. And I don't know what came over me, but I, I got a swell of courage that I had not had before. And I looked right back at him and I thought about how he had treated us and how, how he talked down to all of us minimum wagers. And I looked him in the eye and I said, um, I, I'm, I'm, bringing, I'm bringing this to, to Ms. Starling. She, she asked for some. Well, fortunately, the WBE might have had a little crush on Ms. Starling, so that was in my favor, and he backed down and he said, oh, okay, fine, go, go, go take it to her. So I picked up another piece, and I put it on a napkin, and I walked down to the fishbowl to deliver it to Ms. Starling, and, and I only saw the WBE one more time that day, and he just glared at me because he knew I was gonna eat some of his pizza, and I knew that he knew, and and, I, and he knew that I knew that he knew that. And, and it just kind of went downhill from there. And it was not a, heavy, a happy ever after relationship for us at the food world. That just increased the tension. And he wasn't sad when I left that job. And I wasn't sad either. Now, I've had different bosses over time. I've had some good, some bad, and different kinds of jobs. Uh, my current supervisor, I was told to say, is the best that I've ever had in my life. Um, in all seriousness, Chris, Chris is a great boss. Uh, and, and for those of you who don't know him personally, I'm happy to say he is the same person that you hear on, on this stage, oftentimes on Sunday, uh, Monday through Saturday. We are blessed to have him leading our body. Uh, but but I'm, I'm betting most everyone can relate to my relationship with the WBE. There, there's uh, a few more that, that we'll look at here. So somebody worked at Foot Locker, lifeguard at YMCA, Bag Boyd Ingalls, so local person, uh, plant vendor at Lowe's, we enjoy those people, uh, a tour guide at the Texas State Capitol. Interesting, I would like to hear more about that. Um, but most of us have had some kind of a work experience where we, we had a pretty terrible boss. And I don't want you to put this in the comments, but I just want you to think about this. Uh, what was difficult about being under that person's authority? What, what was it that they did? How did they treat you and treat the other employees that, that made that work situation difficult? I mean, you may be dealing with a difficult situation right now, that it's, it's not a light or a funny thing. It's a really challenging, really serious situation that you're facing. Now, maybe your issue isn't in the workplace, but it's, it's somewhere else with someone who is in some kind of authority in your life that they're really hard to deal with. They're, they're unfair in how they deal with you and, and they, they have some kind of authority and it feels like they might have it out for you personally. Well, believe it or not, the Bible actually addresses this scenario in this next part of 1 Peter. Uh, so the pastor today has some guidance for us in dealing with bosses at work and, and more generally anyone who has authority over us, especially when they don't treat us well. So that's what we're gonna look at today as we continue in 1 Peter. How do we respond to those in a position of authority in our lives, bosses, supervisors, others in authority, particularly when they treat us poorly? What happens when we do everything right as best we can and we still are mistreated? Well, God's word through Peter has a really counterintuitive and, and, and challenging uh, message for us today. So pick up your Bible, uh, put down your coffee for a second and uh, turn it on, uh, open it up to 1 Peter chapter two. Now, just to, as, as you turn there, as you uh, navigate there to connect to the last couple of weeks, connect the dots. Let's start back in verse nine of, of 1 Peter chapter two. And this is where uh, Peter is writing to 
believers, Christians, who are scattered around a wide region. And he explains their identity and their job description that, that arises from it. So this is your identity, this is your job description, part of it, if you're a follower of Jesus today. He says this in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we looked at that a, a few weeks ago. For those of us who have been brought from darkness into light, part of our job description is to proclaim God's excellencies to the world, even as we live as exiles in it. And then in verse 12, Peter writes this. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's our, our God-centered motivation toward honorable conduct. Even and especially when people say nasty things about us or, or spread lies about us. So then Peter gets specific about what this conduct looks like. At the beginning of, of this section of the letter, verse 13, Peter makes an umbrella statement and says that, that Christians are to be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he gives three examples of this. Last week was example number one, Christians and government submitting to the governing authorities. This week, number two, next week we'll look at example number three. So this week, example number two, you thought last week was fun, submitting to the government. You'll really enjoy this one. Read with me in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So, so how does Peter say that we are to conduct ourselves honorably among those who don't follow Christ? How are Christians supposed to stand out or be different? And he says, by submitting to human authorities. First example, submitting to the government. Well, what if it's a bunch of Republicans? Yes. What if it's Democrats who are in charge? Yes. What if it's an evil Roman emperor like Nero? Yes. The answer is the same, to submit. Okay, uh, anything else, Peter? He says, I'm glad you asked. Yes, while we're on the subject of submission, submit yourselves to unjust, ungodly, earthly masters. Now, this is why the Bible is so great. This, is, this was just totally unpredictable. I mean, if, if I were asked, okay, how can, we, how can we honor God amongst the people we're living among with our conduct, I would just say, just be really nice to everybody. That's pretty much it, right? Well, Peter says, servants submit to unjust, ungodly masters. Now, before we dig into the passage a little bit further, we, we need to camp out for just a minute on this first word, because this can really hang us up here. The very first word in verse 18 is servants. Your translation might say slaves. And we'll get to why there's different translations in just a minute. But we need to understand who these people were in the New Testament time to see how that applies to us today. Now, when we see the terms servants or slaves in the Bible and masters, it's almost impossible for us 
to think of anything except the transatlantic slave trade and all that happened in our country, the injustices, and not to mention the race conversation that continues today, the civil rights protests going on even now. We we don't want to de-emphasize any of that. All those things are are crucial for us to engage in as as the church, uh, important things going on in our country. But we need to understand that what was going on 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire in the Middle East was different than what we have in our minds. It's, it's kind of ironic. It used to be uh, misguided religious people that were using the Bible to back up sinful practices that said, well, yeah, the Bible condones slavery. Well, they were absolutely wrong about that. The irony is now it's people who are attacking the Bible and, and trying to discredit the Bible, say, well, the Bible just, it, it condones slavery. It doesn't. Both of those things are wrong. But how do we understand a passage like this. So, so first of all, when you're talking about slavery in the Bible, that's still a really, really broad term and, 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 and range of meanings. There's not one type of slavery, or we might even say servanthood, in the Bible. It's a, the, the Bible's a big book. It covers many different centuries and different civilizations. Uh, j- just three to, to kind of get you thinking. One, in the Old Testament book of Exodus, the nation of Israel, the Jews, they were slaves in Egypt. And that was more akin to what we have in our country's history. The, the Jews were slaves as an ethnic people. They were enslaved because of that. Uh, and they were horribly abused. They were mistreated. And they cried out to God for mercy. And he answered them and delivered them. That's the story of Exodus. A, a different kind of slavery, and, and maybe we would be better to call this servanthood, uh, in, in the Old Testament law that was given to Israel through Moses, so the Mosaic law for the people of Israel, this was different. This was more about debt bondage. It was, it was really a form of bankruptcy law is really what it was. The, the, the law in the Old Testament, usually people were slaves or, or bond servants to pay off a debt. And it was not based on race in any way. It was, and it was not abusive ownership of a human being. It, it wasn't based on ethnicity. And it was regulated. There were laws against abusing that. So for example, if, if a master had a slave or a servant and they hit that slave and they knocked out their tooth, the slave goes free. No questions asked. That was the law. If you had a slave, you, you could not have a slave or a servant for more than six years or until their debt was paid off, if it was before six years, and then they had to go free. So it was not lifelong. It was not a pleasant thing, but I'm saying it was a very different thing from what we normally think of. It was more about paying off your debts if you owed money, and it was more about a, a kind of a protection, like a bankruptcy law in that time to the specific situation of the nation of Israel. And most of the laws in the Old Testament were about not abusing that, about not taking that too far. So that was a different system in Israel and the Old Testament. Now we look to the New Testament, the context of Peter's letter. It's again a different system. Remember, this is centuries later from even the Old Testament times, and it's in the Roman Empire. So it's not condoning what the Romans did. This was just the system of government in place at the time. So the the historical reality under the Roman Empire, there were a lot of ways you could become a a slave or a servant. Uh, You could do it to pay down your debt. So it would be similar to debt bondage that we see in the Old Testament. You could enter into slavery to gain employment. So it, it would be by choice for some people. 
You could be born into it. So your mother's a slave and you're born as a baby. And so that, that gives you that status, at least for as long as, as she is a servant. You could be a prisoner of war. Uh, the Romans conquered, obviously, uh, a, a lot of territory. So you could become a slave that way. If you were convicted of a capital crime, so that was a punishment from the court system, you could be abandoned as a baby. A master of a household could pick you up off the street if you were abandoned and make you a servant in his house. So there were different ways people became slaves or servants then. And again, we're not painting a rosy picture here. We're saying this is what it was. So there are some other things that that make it really different from the transatlantic slave trade, the African slave trade in our country's history. Roman slavery was not ethnically based. So you had slaves and servants of, of different kinds of ethnicities. It wasn't necessarily permanent. There were ways you could work out of it. Uh, in, in, some, in some cases, people would stay on after because it was a secure job for them. Education was encouraged in many cases. You had some slaves that were more educated than their masters. Uh, so education was, was not prohibited in all cases. There were different levels of social status. So just like we saw in the chat here, different jobs that people had. Well, different slaves could have different jobs. Listen to just a, a few examples. Slaves could be architects. They could be physicians. They could be bailiffs, which I think is, is kind of funny. That's <laughs> not what I think of when I think of uh, being a, a servant or a slave. Sea captains, writers, teachers, assistants to wealthy landowners, all kinds of things, uh, even gladiators. So dads on Father's Day, this is probably something that you're going to be thinking about that the rest of the, the, the sermon. Uh, but, but think about slavery in the Roman Empire or, or being a servant to someone in the Roman Empire, there, there's a lot of diversity there. Historians estimate that in some cities, up to a fourth or a third of the entire population of that city would have been a slave. So Peter is writing to a lot of people, and it was very, very common. And, and again, we don't want to say this was a good system. We don't want to uh, 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 paint a rosy picture. We're just describing this is the historical context, so we have a right understanding. So don't let anyone tell you the Bible condones slavery. It, it does not. And understand what we're really talking about when we, when we see the word slaves or servants. It, it's really complicated for translators. So just in, in the New Testament, there are at least 15 different Greek words that are translated into English as servant or slave, hired hand, day laborer, minister, attendant. There's, there's a range of these, and you have to figure out, well, what kind of slave or servant or whatever else is this, and how do we translate that? And that's the, the challenging job that Bible translators have. And even as the English language changes, uh, the, the words that, that used to work just don't communicate quite the same, the right idea. So it's challenging. This word that's translated in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 is only used three other places in, in the New Testament. So it's not a very common word. The, the, the reason that most translations use the word servant in verse 18 is because this was the specific word for a household servant or a domestic servant. So, so think of a, a master of a house. So not, maybe not quite the Biltmore or, or Downton Abbey. It wasn't quite like that, but somebody who was wealthy, who was a landowner, and they could employ people as servants in their house, or they could they could bring them in to work for them to pay off a debt that they owed if they weren't able to pay it financially. Now, being in the Roman Empire, this could, in some cases, be pretty brutal. It all just depended on how good or bad, as we see Peter say in, in this passage, your master 
was, the head of household was. So Peter's writing to Christians who were scattered all over different areas in the Roman Empire, and by and large, they're being persecuted for, for their faith, and some number of them were domestic servants, Christians serving in the household of a non-Christian master. So that's the context that we need to understand his words. So he gives a general principle a few verses before to say, submit to human authorities. Government is the first example. And then secondly, it is basically our everyday jobs. Whether or not we, we have a particular boss at work, we're all under some kind of authority or another is, is how this would, would apply to us. So back to verse 18. What does Peter tell these servants to do? He tells them to be subject. This means to subordinate themselves or to put themselves under, to be submissive to their masters. And in contrast that to how I submitted in my attitude at Food World, okay, maybe your attitude at your first job, he tells them to do this with all respect, no matter if they were good and gentle masters or if they were unjust, unreasonable, and dishonest. If you have a good boss or a bad boss, put yourself under, be subject, be submissive to that person or those people in authority over you. Now, why would Peter tell them that? That doesn't really hit our ears really easily, does it? It doesn't sound very, uh, it doesn't sound very American, right, for, for us. Why, why, to, why would we subject ourselves to poor treatment and even respect the one who is delivering that poor treatment? Well, he gives reasons in the next verses. So let's read on. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In other words, if, if you endure sorrows and harsh and unjust treatment, but you have a God-centered motivation at the forefront of your mind when you endure it, that is a gracious thing in his eyes. That, that carries the idea that it brings, it invites God's favor. It pleases him. It's a beautiful thing in God's eyes. Well, Peter explains further because he, he realizes this, this probably might not sound really, really intuitive. So he explains further in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and you suffer for it, you endure this. Again, here's this, this phrase. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Look, he says, don't, don't fail to do your job or, or produce really terrible work or be dishonest or unfaithful to your employer, and then claim suffering when you face consequences. Okay, he's saying, when you do good, when you do right, and you're still mistreated for that, that's what he's addressing. When, when you're being a good worker, you have a good life witness, you're doing your job with honesty, integrity, and you still get mistreated, maligned, criticized, blamed, ridiculed, those kinds of things, especially in your connection with faith in Christ. It's countercultural even for us. What if your boss is constantly harsh with you? It gives you difficult assignments and doesn't, doesn't give you credit for your hard work. What if a, a teacher or a coach just kind of has it out for you and, and treats you differently in, in, in a negative way? What, what if your supervisor talks to you like you're an idiot and then takes your good ideas, your contributions, and presents them as his or her own? Those kinds of things happen? And what should we do? Peter's answer is submit with all respect and endure mindful of God. He's saying it pleases God when we endure, bear up under that unjust treatment when we're being mindful 
of him. We have him on the forefront, the front burner of our minds, and we're consciously thinking, how do we honor God in this situation? One of my favorite uh, professors at seminary, one of everybody's favorites, uh, as he taught for over five decades, was Dr. Howard Hendricks. Many of you might have heard of him. Uh, He told a story about being stuck on a delayed flight. Now, you've been there when you're just sitting on the tarmac. It feels like you're never going to take off. Uh, and, And there was a man who was being really nasty and rude and was very demanding with a particular flight attendant. And he watched Dr. Hendricks watched this flight attendant treat this obnoxious man with class and professionalism. She was polite. She was caring. She was, she was unflustered. She didn't seem to be faking her, her kind treatment of this man either. And he was so impressed that when the fight, the fight finally took off, he got up and, and went back to her and asked her for her name so he could write a letter of commendation to the airline for how she treated this customer. But she said, thank you, sir, but I don't work for American Airlines. I work for Jesus Christ. What a perspective. How, what an impact that had, must have had on everyone around her. I mean, how do you develop that kind of attitude, especially when you encounter rude, obnoxious people who, who mistreat you for no good reason? Well, that's where Peter goes next as he deals with our motivation as Christians for responding in this kind of way. So pick back up from the second part of verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why? Why is that something God looks on with favor? Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So you might follow in his steps. Well, what was his example? He suffered, but verse 22 He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, verse 24, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Nobody was ever less deserving of unjust treatment than Jesus. But when he went to the cross to bear that penalty, all the suffering that we rightly deserve for all the wrong we've ever done, he bore that up on the cross. How did he respond to those who were mocking him, who were persecuting him? He didn't slander his persecutors in any way. He didn't sin in any way. He didn't return evil for evil. He didn't grumble about us, (laughs) the ones whose sin put him on the cross. He entrusted himself to the judge, the ultimate judge, trusting his father. And he took our sins, went to the cross, suffered unjustly, gave his life for us so that we could be free from sin, so we wouldn't have to sin anymore, and we wouldn't be under that condemnation that penalty and live in a righteous way that pleases God. So for those of us who are following Jesus, we need to remember as we say that that's what we're about here at New Life is, is, is to help people find and follow Jesus. Well, as we're following Jesus, we need to remember we're following the guy who endured the most unjust suffering that anyone ever has. And this is part of our 
calling, it says in verse 21. He left an example for us to follow in his steps. The, the word for example here in the Greek carries this idea of tracing out. So if, for the kids who are watching, if you're sitting on the couch uh, drawing a picture or, or writing, uh, look up for a minute and see if you recognize something like this. Uh, th- many of you are out of school for the summer, but think back to, to when you first learned your letters. So a lot of us have these little dot-dot outlines, and that's how you learn to trace those to make an A or a B or an S or a Y. So Chris, this one's for you. I picked uh, this, this A letter just for you. Uh, maybe you can do it with your family this afternoon. Well, many of us learned how to do our letters by tracing this out. And that's the idea of this Greek word that Jesus is our example. Now, what the Bible tells us is that the way Jesus suffered when he didn't deserve it, it, the the way he responded, it's like those letters. His example is the one we need to trace so we can make him clear and visible to those in our world today. So keep in mind, he's not just our example, he's our savior. If Jesus was only our example, and that would be just a crushing weight to us because we would have to, in our own strength, try to do what he did, which is basically be perfect. But, but because he's already lived that perfect life for us, and then he died for us to free us from that ultimate slavery of sin, he gives us his spirit to enable us to follow in his steps, and we can trace out, we can follow that example that he laid for us. So once we know him as our savior, we can follow his example. The first time that I ever saw snow uh, growing up in, in Florida, we didn't see uh, real snow ever. Um, and, and it was on a, a special trip with my family to Cooperstown, New York. My parents took us because we were dying to see the Baseball Hall of Fame. And a major bonus was the first night that we were there, it had just dumped a ton of snow before we came. And so the first night that we were there, uh, my dad took me out of our motel room to to go play in the snow, really for the first time. And we had a snowball fight, my first real snowball fight. And his dads can get a little competitive uh, with with their kids, uh, with their boys especially. Uh, my, My dad somehow ended up getting me on the ground. I was clearly defeated, uh, yet he continued to scoop mounds of snow down into my shirt, not just winning, but making like a statement of dominance, okay, that he was freezing me half to death and and showing me there was no way I was going to defeat him in the snowball fight. And and that, something clicked at some point, and he realized maybe he took this a little bit too far, uh, and I was way past having fun at, at that point. And so he finally stopped, and we headed back to the motel. I was literally freezing and was having a hard time walking in the snow. It was about two feet deep. And so he said, here, just step where I'm stepping. And my cold, shivering feet just found it a whole lot easier just to walk in his footsteps. He had already done the work. He had already charted out the path, and I simply walked in it. And and that's something like the picture that Peter is giving us here. It's more seriously, it's more obviously more serious than than that, but the suffering that we're going to have to endure before we get to our true home it's, it's real, but if we follow him, we can trust him that he'll bring us home, he'll care for our souls, and when we suffer, even unjustly in this world, he is with us and he will take care of us and he will never leave us. That's his promise. So as we look back over this passage today, as we wrap up, 
We want to wrap up with three points of application. There, there's so many, so much here, uh, but, but three things that we want to think about under this idea of submitting for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and in particular, uh, our unjust authority, okay? So submission to unjust authority, number one, reveals where our hope is rooted. Submission to unjust authority reveals where our hope is rooted. Hope in exile, that's not a fun, lighthearted idea. There's going to be some seriously difficult things. And I have to ask myself, when things are, are comfortable and easy, how do I know my hope is in God? How do I know I'm trusting him? If there's no house repairs or car repairs, my kids are sleeping through the night, when I have good relationships at work and otherwise, how do I know I'm trusting him? But when things aren't good, particularly when, when we're being mistreated for no good reason, that shows where our hope really lies. See, I'm, I'm probably like most of you, I, I don't want to suffer. I want to have a simple life, an easy life, a good life. Uh, what I really want, what I really want is for everything to be perfect. I want no suffering, no sickness, no pain, perfect unity among everyone, no coronavirus, no racial tensions. Basically what I want is what the Bible describes as the kingdom of God. That's what I want my problem is that I want that right now. And God says in his word, that's coming. You can have hope in that. But the reality is the road there is marked with suffering of various kinds. But when we face that and we don't respond with anger and criticism and payback, we show God's grace is sufficient for us, that he is better, his way is better. And our hope in him will... will our hope is in him that he will ultimately make all of those things right. So we trust him that his perfect justice will come in the end, that, that every sin will be paid for either by the sinner or by Jesus on the cross. And that, that has to do with our sin. It also has to do with the sins that are committed against us. So we can hope in him and our hope won't disappoint so point number one, submission to unjust authority reveals where our hope is rooted. Number two, submission to unjust authority shows the world a picture of Jesus. Very few things communicate, communicate Christ quite like when we are, are, are having a, a gracious response to unjust suffering. Now that doesn't minimize our verbal witness. We need to speak about Jesus, but this is a powerful compliment to show the world a picture of what Jesus is like and what he did. And there's, there's nothing that makes sense about submitting to unjust authority if we're not following Jesus. I mean, we're, we're taught things, we're taught values like speaking up for ourselves and fighting for ourselves and, and rejecting authority and being our own person and, and be your authentic self and you do you. You know, these are the things that we hear day in and day out. And what a contrast this passage in 1 Peter gives us. As servants of Jesus, we follow Jesus by being subject to our earthly masters, even bad ones, and even showing respect to authority when we're mistreated. And we don't return evil for evil, but we trust God is the judge who will make all things right. So submission to unjust authority, number one, reveals where our hope is rooted. Number two, shows the world a picture of Jesus. And finally, number three, submission to unjust authority is motivated by Jesus as our example and our shepherd. Jesus suffered for us, it says in verse 21, leaving us an example to follow in his steps. He did everything right, and he still suffered. 
He did everything perfectly, and he was still slandered and falsely accused. And as we follow him, this is what he told us to expect. The question for each of us is, is that enough for us? Is Jesus enough for us, even if we face those kinds of things? Are we prepared to follow him, even if, if that's what it may look like? Well, your answer and my answer to that question will be rooted in verse 25. It's if we have come to know him and trust him as the shepherd and the overseer of our soul. Do you know him in that way? Do you trust him in that way to the point that you know he will take care of you eternally no matter what you experience in this life? I followed my dad back to that motel room in the deep snow, stepping in his footprints because I knew he was leading me to a place of warmth, a place of rest, a place of comfort. I knew there was a hot shower. I knew there were clean, dry clothes. And I knew that he loved me. Now, here's where the illustration breaks down. But I also knew there was a just judge back in that motel room. My mom was there, and she was going to let my dad have it. She was going to give him what he deserved for scooping that snow down my shirt and nearly giving me frostbite. Now, I'm obviously mixing the metaphors right there, but you get the point. Do you see God like that? Do you trust that he will make it right in the end? And do you know him as the shepherd and the overseer of your soul? If so, you can live with hope in exile and even the challenging things that Peter has laid out for us today. And if not, we'd love to talk to you about how you can have that kind of relationship with God as your true father, a perfect father who will never fail you, who will never abandon you. So please reach out to us through that chat feature. You can uh, ask a question or ask for prayer with the online host there. You can reach out to us uh, by email this week. They'll, they'll put the email address um, in, in the chat there. And we would love to talk to you more about how you can have that relationship with God as your heavenly father and, in, and as the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Let me pray as we close and as the band comes to lead us. Father, Peter gave us some, some hard stuff today, uh, none of which we can do without the power of your spirit, without the knowledge that, you, that you've got us, that, that we know that, that you are the shepherd and overseer of our souls. If we know that, then we can, we can go through in your strength a whole lot in this world. And we want to endure whatever you have for us, however easy or hard, um, however much comfort or however much suffering there is. We want to endure in a way that honors you, that, that our, our conduct reflects who you are and who you want us to be. And it reflects Jesus Christ, that it, it shows a picture of him to the world. So make us a people who live like that in your power and your strength and, and help us to really root our hope in you and what you've done for us and how you can live your life through us. We pray these things in Christ's name.